This is Amazing Things. I'm Adam Belmar. Today we'll explore the development of the world's first bionic pancreas, a state-of-the-art device that is poised to transform the management of blood sugar levels in patients with type 1 diabetes, a disease for which there is no cure, and until now, required round-the-clock testing and insulin injections, a process that is both exhausting and potentially fraught with danger. My guest today, Boston University Professor of Biomedical Engineering, Ed Damiano, after this. The Amazing Things Podcast is presented by United for Medical Research, because America's investment in medical research through the National Institutes of Health is making amazing things possible. Learn more at unitedformedicalresearch.com. For Ed Damiano, the world changed just before his son David's first birthday. Confronted with a health crisis that would define his son's life, Dr. Damiano met the challenge head-on as a father and as a biomedical engineer. My wife is a pediatrician, and she had just been practicing medicine for about a year when she diagnosed our son David, who was 11 months old at the time, with type 1 diabetes. Typically, kids are quite a bit older than, than a year old with a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, but you could probably count on one hand the number of kids in the U.S. that are diagnosed under a year of age in any given year. So it's a rather rare uh, diagnosis. But she also knew as a pediatrician that our lives had changed forever. I was a biomedical engineer. I was a mechanical engineer. I didn't see myself as coming up with a biological cure. I did see uh, myself as being able to contribute to a solution that could replace all the hard work Toby and I did to maintain his blood sugars with an automated technology. And the rewarding thing about type 1 diabetes, if you can say there's anything rewarding about it, is that um, if you can maintain blood sugars in near normal range, you are rewarded with the assurance that you can essentially stave off indefinitely long-term complications. The caveat is huge, though, because it's a relentless condition, and it's not something that is really a practical answer because people need a break, and it is a relentless condition, and ultimately it wins, and you have bad days and you have good days. But with a device, device is infinitely patient. Uh, an automated system can be designed to do just that and only that, is never distracted, is not distractible, is not frustrated, and can really do just that. So it was very rewarding from an engineering perspective that if you build a technology that could automate glucose control, you could stave off indefinitely all long-term complications. There are not a lot of chronic illnesses that you can say that about, but type 1 diabetes is one of those things. So that's really what got me thinking about building a, a device like this. But back in May of 2000, when baby David Damiano was diagnosed, a cornerstone of what would become the bionic pancreas, an accurate and reliable continuous glucose monitoring technology, didn't even exist yet. People without type 1 diabetes have about a teaspoon of sugar in their blood at any given time. That's pretty much the average level of sugar you have in five liters of blood, the amount of blood in an adult. Uh, would have about a teaspoon of sugar. Now, you, t you eat 50, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 grams of carbohydrates in a meal routinely, you're bringing in you know, sometimes 20-fold that amount of sugar in, in one meal. And so your pancreas has to secrete insulin appropriately to make sure that your blood sugar doesn't ride too high. When you have type 1 diabetes, you have a situation where 
you're trying to maintain your blood sugar as close to that one teaspoon as possible. Of course, it's a much less refined system than the pancreas, so you're using injection therapy or insulin pumps to do it, checking your blood sugar frequently if you're up to the task with finger stick measurements or continuous glucose monitoring. But unfortunately, insulin has an extremely narrow therapeutic range, so even a small overdose of insulin can be deadly. Um, so the, the, the problem is that, you know, you're dosing out, you're titrating these doses of insulin, and the, that, that very drug is inherently potentially extremely dangerous if you overdose it just a little bit. So you're really trying to thread the proverbial needle. You're trying to keep those blood sugar levels as close to normal as possible by treating it with a sufficient amount of insulin. But if you overdose a little bit, with too much insulin, you have this worry of severe hypoglycemia. And what's associated with that, you can have seizures, you can have loss of consciousness, you can die. There's a subset of people who have a predisposition to cardiac arrhythmia in the face of severe hypoglycemia. And there's a very scary phenomenon referred to as dead in bed syndrome, in which people um, go to sleep at night and there's either a little bit too much insulin on board for any number of reasons, and uh, they never wake up. They just, uh, they, they die from severe hypoglycemia and no one's there to see it happen and they don't rise to consciousness at night and they just die. So it's a very scary prospect and the likelihood of death due to dead in bed syndrome in children with diabetes is it's almost a, an order of magnitude higher than other children without type 1 diabetes. It's a very scary thing. So basically what that me leads the parent to do is to check blood sugars frequently overnight. And so for the first eight years of David's life, his parents set an alarm every two hours overnight to check his blood sugar. Overall, David was checked up to 15 times per day, and every reading and insulin dosage and carbohydrate eaten was faithfully recorded in a notebook, a notebook that formed the basis of the algorithms for the bionic pancreas. At that time, my group was very small. I had a few PhD students, and one was Firas Al-Khatib, and he had just come into my lab working in a, as a master's student on a problem in blood flow. Very disciplined thinker, somebody who could really build a, a very reliable control system that we could trust. He studied David's notebooks. Every day was a page, right? Every day was a page of notes about the, the ins and outs, you know, the glucose levels, the carbs in uh, to David every day. So he had that kind of a record uh, to get started to get a sense of what a unit of insulin does to a blood sugar in somebody who weighs 20 pounds, you know? And so that's where we started. We called David the canonical form. And what we meant by that was, you know, we wanted to be able to, to use David as our model, but then things would scale David to a, to a 200 pound person from a 20 pound person. And that we, he should be this, this kind of universal that can scale to different people. Um, and, and we would hope this device would be so universal that it could be initialized only with body weight and then it would just adapt. None of those things did we, have un did we understand exactly how uh, we would deploy that, how we'd implement that, but, but ultimately we figured that out over time. In 2004, Damiano and his team made the move to Boston University and began testing their work in animals. In 2006, they began a collaboration with Stephen Russell and David Nathan at Massachusetts General Hospital that led to their first human studies in 2008. And that earliest model of their bionic pancreas bore little similarities to what was to come. This is a very clumsy device. It runs on a laptop computer. It had three little insulin pumps out on the table. And we were sampling blood glucose from a large reference quality venous blood glucose sampling system that would hang on an IV pole next to the bedside stand. So there was nothing portable, nothing ambulatory about this device. It was a 
clumsy thing, but it was new in that it was subcutaneous infusion of insulin and glucagon, and all decisions were completely auto autonomous. The, the, the computer was deciding how to control blood sugar. Those first human experiments on 20 inpatient subjects lasted just 27 hours, but technology was finally catching up. By 2009, continuous glucose monitors were small enough to be placed under the skin, and suddenly, test subjects could begin to be more physical. And then, in 2011, it all started to come together. So people have been wondering, how do you follow up a hit product like the iPhone 4? Well, I'm really pleased to tell you today all about the brand new iPhone 4S. Apple had released the iPhone 4S, which was the first smartphone to have a low-energy Bluetooth radio. So we could literally build a system that wouldn't draw so much power so that it would last, you know, a day or so between charges. So we started in 2011 taking all the mathematical algorithms that ran on the computer, on the laptop, and poured it over to a little app that ran on the phone. And that all happened in the space of about 12 months. And, we, and Tandem Diabetes... Uh, came out with their new insulin pump, which had a Bluetooth radio in it. So there's a bunch of things that kind of coalesced. So the mobile system came online in early 2013. And since then, we've completed six outpatient clinical trials with the mobile system. And that system now we're replacing finally with the device we built over the past couple of years, which we call the Islet. And that device does not depend on a mobile system. It's independent of an iPhone. It's a fully standalone dual chamber infusion system, a dual pumping system, one for insulin, one for glucagon. All the mathematical algorithms are embedded in firmware on that system. And the, and the continuous glucose monitor that we've been using from Dexcom is now built right into that platform. So now it's a small handheld device. It's just a little bit bigger than the old original iPhone. A self-contained bionic pancreas. But where did the funding for all of the research come from? The answer, plenty of sources, including the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. But one source stood above everything else. The NIH has been a tremendous supporter of our technology and our research efforts to build this device. We've raised about $18 million through Boston University to fund this program over the past 10 years, and one out of every $2 has come from the NIH. So about $9 million of that funding has come from the NIH. Uh, so we simply could not be here without them. They are the bread and butter of our basic science research program in health science and biomedical science in the U.S. It's essential that we have a very strong and healthy Health. Now, taking research from the lab and turning it into a commercial product that real patients can use represents an entirely different set of challenges, both financial and regulatory. But once again, Ed Damiano and his team forged ahead with an innovative solution. They created a company called Beta Bionics as a public benefit corporation, a new kind of business that can place accomplishing its mission above making a profit. We started a medical technology company last fall called Beta Bionics, and it is, as far as I know, the first medical technology company ever to incorporate as a benefit corporation. By the end of 2017, Ed Damiano and his team plan to submit their bionic pancreas, now called the Islet, for a pre-market approval from the FDA, bringing to fruition a mission undertaken by a father on behalf of his infant son. David is going to college in a mere 13 months, and I'd love to have a bionic pancreas on him when he goes to college, but I'm going to come up short. 
I have to say by about 12 months, I'm afraid. So we'll have to figure something else out for those 12 months. But I do hope that he goes into his sophomore year wearing a bionic pancreas. That would be my goal. That is still my goal. Today, more than 1 million people in the United States have type 1 diabetes. For them, and the 20,000 children diagnosed each year, the bionic pancreas will be the most revolutionary advance in diabetes care since the discovery of insulin. The Amazing Things Podcast is presented by United for Medical Research because America's investment in medical research through the National Institutes of Health is making amazing things possible. Learn more at unitedformedicalresearch.com.